0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Shrewd federal contractors and other companies like to hire military veterans who bring valuable skills. Now, two veterans have written a how-to book that seeks to teach hiring managers what they call a data-driven approach to hiring and retaining veterans. Authors Kristen Sabo and Nathan Ainspan talked about the issues with Tom Temin. And let's begin with what this book
2: is all about and who it's aimed at. Data-driven management sounds like a very narrow cast
3: book. Thank you. It's a a wider audience than it might sound. Uh, The book is for hiring managers. Uh, business leaders, uh, the C-suite, CEOs, senior leaders of organizations, private, public companies, even government, who want to hire and retain military veterans in their civilian organizations. And what the different tack that we've taken from many of the books that are out there is this data-driven approach. Uh, the authors, um, Kristen and I, are both industrial organizational psychologists, and we're psychologists with PhDs who focused on psychology in the workplace, what motivates people, what drives people how do you attract people, what are the things that um, really get people going and want to go to work in the morning. And we assembled a group of IO psychologists, Uh, many of them are also veterans, and each uh, chapter in the book tackles a different uh, area of the hiring, recruiting, and retention that occurs in the company. And we use the science and the applied literature to answer the questions about how do you hire and retain veterans. So rather than using the case studies that you might see in other places or descriptions of what other companies do, we talk about the science of motivation, of competencies, and then what the science says and what you can learn from the science to be able to do your hiring and retention of veterans better.
2: And what is the big major difference or major differences in hiring veterans versus hiring anybody else?
0: yeah, when we look at the veteran population, and i I want to actually broaden that to be our military community more broadly to include military spouses and military caregivers, because we see that they have heightened unemployment and underemployment compared to the general population as well. And so when we're looking at employing our military community members, we want to be particularly sensitive to one. It is a category that would be queued up as a diverse category. Um, But they're diverse due to their employment, which makes them a bit different from some other groups that would be falling under an EEO, say, legislation or um, discrimination umbrella. And so when we look at hiring, we actually want to look at finding the best fit. It's not just about hiring, but really retention to what Nate was just hitting on in terms of best practices for ensuring you're creating an environment that maximizes their skill sets, some of the unique experiences and the competencies that come from those experiences with service, and then also making sure you're helping to bridge what we call the civilian-military divide, which is really a cultural divide between two communities that tends to persist simply due to coming from an organization or an environment where there's a really strong culture. and In strong cultures, a lot of those norms and experiences are dictated may not be as explicitly known to you, you leave that culture, you enter a new culture, and suddenly you have to make a transition that's, that can be quite significant for many people. And so helping in that transition is really critical, too, as the employer needs to meet the veteran or the military spouse halfway, and the veteran or military spouse has to meet the employer halfway.
2: So in other words, the man bund bearded tech startup guy has to have some understanding of the button-down, sharp military woman, and they have to meet somehow in the middle, you might say.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes you might be surprised that that um, military veteran is more likely to fit into that tech startup than anyone would ever imagine because they're highly entrepreneurial, they have that agility. And so it's really about finding that individual fit. Um, Once you've met a veteran, you've met a single veteran. They're they're all individuals coming from a single-source employer, if you will.
2: Sure, and I guess it sounds like what you're saying it might be wise to approach this, and I'll make an analogy, if you have a diversity and inclusion program and companies are taking programmatic approaches to that now, you should probably have a program for veterans to make sure that you
3: get the best results. It is coming up under the diversity and inclusion initiatives, and the companies that have done the DNI well tend to do veterans well with the to underline or as the military would say the foot stomp it's got to be not just the diversity in, uh, initiatives but also inclusions because what they're finding is you can bring in the people and say you've hit your diversity marks but do you really integrate the people do you really accept the different cultures and honor them and bring them in and integrate them so they can work together and really maximize whatever everybody brings to the table. Um, To what you said about the the techie person versus the button-up, that's one of the things that we saw in the science in the book is that veterans can represent a range of interests, and can fit in with different companies. It seems almost contradictory that many large bureaucratic organizations, government agencies, like to hire veterans because they can exist and thrive in bureaucracies and know the chain of command, know who to report to. But then we do see the startups that like veterans because they also find that veterans and military families are very entrepreneurial, which seems contradictory. But we've seen that the the service members learn to be entrepreneurial in a bureaucracy. So, depending on what your company's focus is, how you, what your company values, and it's the corporate culture. Uh, your appeal, your interest in the veterans would vary, and that's part of what we describe is to really understand their, your company, your goals, your mission, and how to appeal and find and recruit the veterans based on that mission.
2: Sure. If someone's main experience was the Defense Logistics Agency, for example, talk about a big bureaucracy where you're doing a lot of process work versus a frontline platoon leader, also a veteran, but they have totally different major pieces in their experience. Fair, fair analogy?
3: Yes, definitely.
2: We're speaking with Doctors Kristen Sabo and Nathan Ainspan, co-editors of Military Veteran Employment, a guide for the data-driven leader. All right, so I'm a company. I, I'm in charge of hiring or I have a specific need. What do I do first here if I want to get better at hiring veterans?
0: Yeah, that's a great question and is always an it-depends answer when it comes down to it. Ultimately, as a company, you need to know your own company, your own culture, and your own value statements. And that's going to drive the return on investment you're going to get from any talent you bring in, right? And with veterans and the military community members, that's no different. So you need to know why you're bringing individuals in and then make sure they're fitting with that why. Um, And and be honest and candid in that. With veterans, sometimes it is important to be a bit more transparent in your hiring practices initially to help them in that negotiation, help them understand job levels, because you're moving from one system to another. Just as a federal worker that maybe moves to a corporate sector, it may be less um, aware of how the corporate sector works, how it's it's functioning. So, similarly with veterans, you, you do need to help Maybe put out your hand a little bit more and be transparent in that process. And then once you onboard them, you want to make sure you have a strong uh, system in place and policies that are really going to welcome them into the system and help with that transition for them as they're going not just through the physical transition of a new employer, but also an identity shift in terms of shifting from I'm a soldier, I'm a sailor, sailor, to I'm an employee at this company and driving my own career.
2: And where does the data-driven leadership fall in all of this?
3: It would be the leaderships, the CEOs, and others who look to the research and the science Um, on the one hand, to be able to understand what's going on, um, to make decisions based on what the research has shown rather than just going on the gut. It also is data-driven, and many companies collect extensive data on uh, what their recruiting approaches are like, what works, what doesn't work, uh, and then also looking at what science is out there and what we know about psychology and motivation, um, what we know about retention and what keeps people in place in different jobs and what may cause them to leave. And also, to use the retention as an example, understanding your retention data of looking at why people may leave, when they stay, what works in your organization, and understanding your organization specifically.
2: And before we close, we should point out that you both have experience in this whole field. You have been in personnel and HR issues, uh, uh, Nathan, in, in the uh, DOD as a civilian.
3: Yes, I worked in the Army Civilian Personnel Office for about four years, and I'm currently with the Transition Assistance Program. Uh, It's the Military Civilian Transition Office at the Department of Defense, which runs the transition program for all the services. Uh, The book I did um, on my own time as a side project. Sure, I've had years looking at the question of how do the military transition, how it can be done successfully, and also just how companies can benefit. Coming from the industrial psychology perspective, I don't see it as charity or as patriotism, but you look at all the skills and the millions of dollars the government spends on training these people. And DOD has seen that if these members, after receiving all these experience, all this taxpayer provided training and experiences, if they transition out and don't use them in a, in a successful way to really maximize everything they've done, we're wasting our taxpayers' dollars. Sure. And Kristen, you were in the Army
0: Absolutely. So I actually took a bit of a path less traveled, and I finished my PhD in industrial organizational psychology and decided I had a desire to serve and do research as it drives strategy and policy, which is a unique world to be in. So I joined the Army as a research psychologist, had some fantastic experiences, deployed. I can literally say I risked my life for surveys which very dramatic, <laughs> but true. You can um, work for the
2: Census Bureau.
0: There you go. There's some truth to that. Um, and, and then I was a staff officer at the Pentagon, actually working within um, the Chief of Staff for Personnel. And now I, I um, in part, lead our efforts for veterans and military spouses at Boeing, actually. So I have the unique opportunity to sit on all sides of this picture and have conversations with nonprofit partners with other corporate entities, really understand how it works and then also have had the you know experience myself.
1: Kristen Sabo and Nathan Ainspan are co-authors of Military Veteran Employment, a guide for the data-driven leader. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration. And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
4: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation.
1: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style?
4: uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
1: <laughs> Perfect.
4: that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. and But it also inspired me to lead even more, and to lead harder, and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch- Chamber of Commerce, uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy,
1: It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them?
4: You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute I think is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King.
1: Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career, um, what comes to mind there?
4: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet, or snow,
1: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
4: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
1: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.
3: This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second.